As a part of their plan to enslave the peoples of Europe, the Germans have methodically destroyed the intellectual leaders and educational facilities of the conquered countries. They gave particular attention to the destruction of scientists, students, and teachers. In fact, anyone who might in the future provide leadership for the revival of the victims of their aggression. The world is falling apart around me. And my prime concern is to get to, get to a school. I had shelter and I had food, more than plenty of food. The people liked me, I liked them. My language was getting passable, what I call pedestrian language, but I didn't go to school. School was important for Hannah from a young age. Her parents repeated the same advice over and over again. They would always say, What you know, nobody can take away from you. That was hammered and hammered into our head all the time. So I spoke to the farmer and I said, I really, really, really would like to go to school. And she says, well, you can go to school. So I did apply to different boarding schools. And I told them that if they give me free education, I would clean the school premises, whatever they needed, either the blackboard or the classrooms and the toilets and windows, whatever needed. I would exchange my hands, my labor for an education. One school agreed. It was a really upper-class finishing school, which... <laughs> meant that the girls from better families had to learn how to be good hostesses. They learned about hygiene, they learned about childcare, they learned about folding napkins, they learned about cooking, somewhat little Danish history, little math, little geography. But mostly it was geared towards that. Anna was 17 when she arrived at school. She was welcomed by the headmistress, who dressed in all black and wore a black bowler hat with a velvet ribbon that tied beneath her chin. The semester had already started. I was the true Cinderella. These girls were from well-to-do families, not just money-wise, but contact-wise. They all knew the right society. Uh, they all were well-dressed, although we wore uniforms. Uh, they went to dances with the boys' academy, and I had nothing. I didn't have a uniform. I didn't have textbooks. I worked in the morning, went to class. I wasn't even in the dorms with the girls because they put me, like, in the maids' quarters under... Uh, slanted roof, and I had like a chest under the slanted window. Every night, Hannah diligently copied every word from borrowed textbooks to her notebook, always using a green pen. She stored them on the chest, which was under the slanted window. I copied and copied and copied everything, and one day I come to the room, and the snow came in, and everything which I wrote was washed out. 
All the writing and copying she'd done was now a puddle of green ink. She'd been stoic for so long. There'd been plenty to be upset about, but it was this seemingly small thing, these soaked pieces of paper, that broke her. The world is falling apart. My parents are in concentration camp, and I start crying and crying and crying over this washed-out notes which I make in classroom. Hannah's envy went much deeper than the class divide between her and her classmates. She found herself painfully jealous of the girls' families and consumed by the feeling that the other girls hated her. In my head was, as I said, the world is falling apart, but I'm concerned about these girls hate me. They look down on me. I had an accent in Danish, right? Like I have in English. I was not one of them. I worked in the morning, I worked at night. I was a total outsider. I really had the feeling that they hate me because I was totally different. But when the holiday season came, Hannah's classmates surprised her with a gift. When they went home for Christmas vacation, they gave me a big Christmas present with textbooks and a ring. Hannah told me it was one of the most precious gifts she ever received. I always think, you know, how different it is what's in your head and what's in your reality. Because I did realize they really cannot hate me that much since they are giving me textbooks. You know, I thanked them and I cried because I, in my mind, I um, accused them of something which was not really correct. Hannah studied at the boarding school for about a year. One of the teachers there took a liking to her. And after she graduated, the teacher helped her find a job as a maid with a banker's family. She went from studying how to supervise a maid to being one. The bank was on the first floor. The bankers lived on the second floor. And I lived on the third floor in the maid quarters. And this is where it happened. Where one day, a young Dane came and knocked, knocked on the door. said to the banker's family, I understand that you have a Jewish maid. And they said, yes. And he said, there's going to be a raid against the Jews. I will take her to safety. By this time, America had joined the war. The Allied and the Axis powers were killing each other with speed escalating the violence that would lead to the end of World War II. 1943 brought a psychological turning point. Germany won in Stalingrad, a city in present-day Russia. So they fought Soviet forces for four months. It's still considered one of the bloodiest battles in modern warfare. Almost two million people were injured or killed. Germany surrendered, and now the Soviet Union, an ally to Great Britain and the U.S., to take control of the war. In Poland, there was the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. The Warsaw Ghetto was the largest ghetto that the Nazis created in Europe. They blocked off part of the city with walls topped with barbed wire. 
they imprison more than 400,000 Jews inside before deporting them to concentration and extermination camps. When the Jews revolted, they were led by the young people, not much older than Hannah. It took the Nazis a month to beat the uprising. Then they raised the notorious ghetto to the ground. By this time in history, gas chambers had been built. The systematic murder of the Jews was underway. The Nazis called it the final solution. The letters home from Hannah's parents had stopped coming long before. Following their murder in Sobibor extermination camp, an uprising took place there as well, and the camp closed. Their ash laid the foundation for the revolt. The war was changing in Denmark, too. In August of 1943, the Germans officially dissolved the Danish government. It was time for the Jews to flee. The stranger who came for my grandmother on his bicycle led her by bike through the country. I didn't ask him who he was, what he was, where he was from. They biked down south to a tall white church that sat like a crown against the sky. And he said goodbye and left. The shadow of a pastor appeared in the doorway and led her to the bell tower, where she found a dozen other people already waiting. The minister was hiding other Jews, whom I did not know, and also was hiding some Danes who were underground. The bell tower was dark and cold. The walls were built from raw wood. A few small round windows dotted the attic, just enough natural light to remind the refugees that day always becomes night. We slept on straw mattresses. They brought us some food up to the bell tower and told us to hold our ears when somebody comes and rings the bell every hour on the hour. And we were told that there's going to be a certain code and when there's a code, we have to run to the beach. And a couple of days later, the code came and we ran to the beach and we hid under the upside-down turned sailboats. Some sailboats they found on the shore. And then there was another code, a whistle, to run to the fishing boat. While Hannah had been waiting in the church tower, she'd learned that the illegal crossing to Sweden cost money. My head said, he will not take me. I'm here in hiding, but he will not take me. I have nothing. I don't have a penny. She ran to the boat with the rest of the refugees. She said to the fisherman, I have nothing to give you, no money. He says to me, I didn't ask you. He led her on the boat anyway. And for the second time in her young life, my grandmother fled. I'm Rachel Cerati. We share the same sky. If the microphone becomes too much, just let me know. It's okay. I'm not afraid of, of, of this. You're very used to this. Right? You've been doing this for years and, and years. I think I'm relaxed. <laughs> you know, when you already become part of history whilst you are alive, <laughs> you hear your own story being told. <laughs> <laughs> to tell who I am, 
Well, I uh, I'm bent milk you. That is for sure. I'm a person who has been married for 67 years. We have four sons. We have 12, had 12 grandchildren. We are great-grandparents to 21. So uh, already there, we, we have a good background. That's how Ben introduces himself. He doesn't start with the fact that he was a professor, that he became the chief rabbi of Denmark, or that he's dedicated his life to fighting for refugee rights. He doesn't boast that at 90 years old, he's still able to get a group of young children to sit still while he tells his life stories. He is wise and he's gentle. When people have to give an old man a compliment, they cannot say you are beautiful, you are handsome, you are... They can say you are very wise man. I met Ben in 2015. My grandmother had told me that when the fisherman smuggled her to Sweden, that she happened to be on the same boat as a famous rabbi. He was there with his wife and four children. Some of them were the teens my age. Ben was one of those teens. He was 14 at the time of the rescue, four years younger than my grandmother. The rabbi was well-known in Denmark, and after the war, he'd actually become the chief rabbi. And years later, his son... Ben would follow in his footprints and do the same. When I first came to Denmark, I wrote to Ben. I remember walking into his home, up the three flights of stairs from a busy Copenhagen street to the rabbi's apartment. I sat on his couch with a bold claim. I told him that my grandmother had crossed the Baltic Sea with him as a young refugee in 1943. He asked me a lot about her. Was she 18 in 1943, but when she came to Denmark, she was, she was 14. I told him all about how she got to Denmark, how she left Czechoslovakia with her friends from the Zionist youth group, and that the fact that I was sitting in his living room right now was because their lives intersected for one terrifying night in 1943. And then I asked him to retell the story of the rescue, as he remembered it. I'd read his account before, Some of it matched up with my grandmother's version. Some of the details clashed. But this is the fun of family stories. Everyone remembers things differently. His story of the rescue operation, what would be known as the rescue of the Danish Jews, begins on that recurring date, September 29th, in the year 1943. My father became central to the story of the the whole uh, refugee period because he was the one that actually announced what's going to happen. For much of the war, German soldiers called Denmark the whipped cream front, because by comparison, it was a lovely place to be stationed. While their fellow soldiers were facing bullets on the eastern front, the Germans stationed in Denmark had luxuries, like cake and bacon. There were blonde girls to date and beaches to sit on. There was an air of normalcy in Denmark during a violent time. Denmark received preferential treatment from their occupiers. With their blonde hair and blue eyes, Hitler saw Denmark as being the ideal German protectorate. He thought that it would be the example of how Europe would look under his control. So he let their government stay intact. And since Denmark's constitution forbade any discrimination on the basis of religion, the Jews remained safe in Denmark. Their protection became a symbol of Danish autonomy. Denmark's king, King Christian X, would ride his horse around Copenhagen to show his authority, in spite of the German presence. 
pedestrians and cyclists would enthusiastically parade behind him. But all of that changed in 1943. As the Germans faced defeat in the East and the Danish resistance gained momentum, Hitler decided that Denmark would no longer receive its preferential treatment. The time of the whipped cream front was coming to an end. Germans dissolved the Danish government and started arresting prominent leaders. They instituted martial law and made a plan to deport the Jews of Denmark. But someone leaked those plans. Actually, a German officer did. A German officer, which in itself, of course, is also very important to underline that there were good Germans. A man by the name Georg Ferdinand Dukwitz was serving as a diplomat in occupied Denmark for Nazi Germany. He joined the Nazi party in 1933, and although continuously disillusioned by the party's politics, he accepted the job during the war. When he learned about the plans to deport Denmark's Jews, he leaked the news to a Danish politician, who passed the news on to Bent's father. And then the German diplomat traveled to Sweden, where he started planning with Swedish leaders how they could receive the thousands of people who would soon become Danish refugees. He told the story to some politicians, and as it happened, the then chief rabbi of Denmark was already arrested by the Germans, and therefore the message came to my father. On September 29th, 1943, when the Jewish community gathered in the great synagogue in Copenhagen for Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, Bent's father prepared his remarks. I imagine him, like a biblical prophet, speaking into the distressed crowd. He stood at the front of the synagogue and told them it was time to flee. He said, quote, You must also speak to your Christian friends and ask them to warn any Jews they know. You must do this immediately, within the next few minutes so that two or three hours from now, everyone will know what is happening. By nightfall, we must all be in hiding. He was the one that said, don't be at home on Friday night. Pass the message on. And that's what happened. Jews found refuge with Christian friends in the city and the countryside, and with neighbors and employers. When Gestapo officers arrived at the homes of Jews, they found empty apartments and houses. The Jews were being hidden in summer homes, basements, and on farms. Hospitals in Copenhagen checked in Jews as pretend patients, giving them typical Danish names. Entire medical staffs and most countrymen and countrywomen cooperated to save Jewish lives. In the weeks during the rescue, even staying silent about the underground efforts was a form of resistance. The plan was for the Jews to hide, and then to flee, to Sweden, a country that had remained neutral throughout the war. The German diplomat had succeeded in organizing with the Swedish government to receive the Danish refugees. For 10 days, Bent and his family hid in a priest's home. They were one of the last families to flee Denmark. By this time, the Nazis had caught on. So the Danes were now directing refugees down south. A boat ride from southern Denmark to Sweden would take longer, but it'd be less likely to be caught by the Germans. 
Can you recount this part of the story for me? So we, we started out from where we were hidden in a priest's house. So we went by train. You know, this was also a problem because I had a little brother who was five years old. They worried a five-year-old could say something to give them away on the train. So we put my mother and my little brother into a first-class uh, wagon uh, for themselves. In the first-class compartment, they'd have more privacy and less chance of being noticed. So we were a little bit shocked when we saw that the other woman in that compartment was uh, taking up a German newspaper. Every person a possible enemy. On the night of October 8th, the first night of Yom Kippur, Bent and his family arrived to their next hiding place, to a bishop's home by the coast. And he had 60 Jews in his house. And we were there only in a number of hours. And uh, it was, must have been around half past six, seven o'clock that the cabs came and uh, took us to the boats. What I remember from that place was that there was a policeman in full uniform, a Danish policeman, who helped us and wished us what he could wish us in that situation. The whole town must have known about it. Uh, And uh, that was a good sign, good feeling, because what we did was really not legal. fisherman put us all in the hull of the little fishing boat and uh, first he put linen and put herring on top of us. Slew and slew of little herring which he caught. So we were laying under there with layers and layers of herrings on top. And we took off. We were 19 on our boat. You could hardly breathe. Some people were getting seasick and fish sick and throwing up on each other. The refugees sailed into the night. The dark sky mirrored the depth of the sea. Everyone lay silent, unsure of where they were going or what exactly they were running from. Hannah carried a small vial of poison, gifted to her by her father in 1939, in case of an emergency. Everyone understood that arriving to Sweden was a matter of life and death. The only other options were to drown or be caught by the Nazis. When day broke, the boat was drifting. No land was in sight. They should have been there by now. Rumors started to spread among the 19 people huddled in the boat. Maybe the fisherman was a criminal. Maybe he was a drunk. Maybe he was just lost. He then confessed to the passengers. He had never sailed into open waters before. He didn't even know how to use a compass. We were told that we would we would have up to eight hours trip. And uh, we did it in almost 18 hours instead of eight. Yeah. If we had not, by coincidence, hit Sweden, what would have happened to us? I, I realized how close we were to 
to end the days there. On a foggy Saturday afternoon during the war, a young Swedish boy named Per Arne was playing soccer outside of his family's home. His father was a fisherman, and they lived in a little fishing village directly across from the Baltic Sea. It was October 9, 1943, and Per Arne was celebrating his sixth birthday. As he kicked the ball around on the grass, he noticed a boat in the distance. Even though the war hadn't come to his country, he often heard the fighter planes up above and knew that it wasn't normal for boats to be in the water. He ran inside to tell his father what he saw. It was the boat that my grandmother was on. When I had first met Bent, he told me that he was still friends with this fisherman's family and that this young boy now lived in his childhood home. So a few weeks later, I went to meet this stranger who was credited with saving my grandmother's life. And that is how I found myself standing with Per Arne's daughters on the exact spot where my grandmother touched land after the night she was lost at sea. My father told me that the weather like today, okay. it was the same weather that day okay. when he was on the other side and playing football, when he saw the, yeah. the boat. And I first met Per Arne and his family in March of 2015. Yeah. Um, I don't know if your father would recognize her. I brought a couple yeah. of photographs. Of yeah, please. Yeah. I don't know if her face would... Yeah, I know. That's around the age when she came. These are just some from around the same age. That's her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and my father said, yes, he thinks so. Yeah. He was not so old. He was only seven years. But he can remember. The boy who had spotted my grandmother's boat was in his 70s now. And his physical disabilities restricted him to his house. The same was true of his wife. Neither of them could even walk to the coast anymore. Their home was full of nautical-themed artifacts. There were replicas of ships, Small statues of soldiers, a brass helm. Dozens of clocks lined their dining room. Digital clocks, antique clocks, clocks that made whimsical sounds on the hour every hour. The time passed publicly, thanks to the skinny hands that tick by the minute and the bright red numerals that change by the second. For a couple who was unable to leave their house without assistance, time was of the essence. Here you have... A story of common people, just fishermen, normal Swedish fishermen, a wife, and I see he had two children, and the boy who was playing with his ball, it was his birthday, on the 9th of October 1943, he became six years old. So he had no thoughts of doing good or bad or anything that he saw something that during the years of war were very unusual, namely a boat in the sea. Uh, today he wouldn't run, nobody would run to back to see, oh, there's a boat coming. A boat's coming all the time. But in those days there was no traffic because it was dangerous. Uh, 
So he did the good deed without knowing that he did a good deed. And then his his father reacted. My grandfather had to took his boat three, three times, three times mm. to get out and pick up the people and, and yeah. yeah no, my and my grandfather was a very um, he wasn't a, he wasn't afraid. He told what he he was thinking and he did it like that. And that was what was very important for him. Also for my grandfather. Here was a fisherman, he understands that he must have known that that could be Jews from Denmark because in those weeks that was the topic of, of what happened in Sweden. And he comes out and welcomes us to Sweden. And what a welcome. That was a spontaneous reaction of, uh, of a feeling here are some human beings that are being persecuted and we care. Min far han sa välkommen till Sverige men så öppnade alla de här du vet tre lokorna de har lagt ut och så kom alla nitto. Yeah, you know, it was a fisherman mm-hmm. that boat mm-hmm. and my grandfather came out to the boat and then he, he told the fisherman welcome to Sweden and then everyone came out from the boat because they didn't know. They didn't know if they were in Germany or in, yeah, Poland. Yeah, they didn't know where. I know that was a big fear. Then, the Swedish fishermen took us into a fishing village, and the fishermen were fighting over who is going to be in whose house for breakfast or for lunch or for dinner or for food. You know, on the shore. Swedish locals were taking the people from the boat home with them. Hannah was alone. I did not know anybody. So I said, whose house am I going to go? They were treating us, you know, to feed us. But I decided to go with the rabbi to the family of the fishermen. When I met Per Arne and his family in Sweden, I only stayed with them for a short time at least on that first visit. I watched the time pass on each of their clocks. Time felt slower when I looked at the digital clocks than the clocks with hands that counted the seconds. We ate dinner together and shared stories, laughing each time the language barrier kept us from exchanging details. It's too much in my head. I'm so sorry. You okay, Next time I come, I'll know Swedish. I've been back every year since, And in 2017, just shy of a year after I was widowed, Bent and I traveled to their home together. At 88 years old, he drove us through Copenhagen and across the Orasund Bridge from Denmark to Sweden. I wanna wanna note that we are crossing the Baltic Sea right now. And you crossed the Baltic Sea with my grandmother almost 75 years ago. It's pretty incredible. The bridge we crossed 
didn't exist in 1943. It was built about 20 years ago. It's five miles long. We arrived to the Pearsons' home within an hour of leaving Copenhagen and were greeted by a cool August breeze. The salty air filled our noses. It was like time froze here. The smell was the same. The coastline was the same. Together, Bent and I walked down to the sea. I looked down at the stones beneath my feet, grabbing a few and rubbing the smooth edges like a good luck charm. It happens that stones can, can tell stories. I pocketed one, a perfectly round, light tan stone with barely any blemishes. When I'm standing there at the beach, looking at that water, uh, I, I, I see myself on the bottom of that sea. The rescue of the Danish Jews saved nearly 95% of Denmark's 8,000 Jews. In just over three weeks, more than 7,000 people, including non-Jewish spouses and members of the underground, were illegally ferried across the Baltic Sea to Sweden, whose government promised immediate and unconditional sanctuary for all those fleeing Denmark. Fewer than 500 Jews were caught by the Germans and deported to concentration camps. And in this tiny little house on the coast of southern Sweden, the story is preserved. It is something outstanding. You enter this place, it's not a big place, and you, you feel something special because uh, they collected every little bit, every note in any newspaper. And uh, all the small things that my mother used to send them on the anniversary of our coming there, it is in a shrine. It smells of here, something happened. A place is not holy by itself. It's a question of the people that are there that make the place a holy place. It is a the actions by human beings that can change a place from a normal house into a holy place. And I think that is the kind of feeling I have to enter this little house. The event of October 43 has been central in the life of this family. To them, this event uh, meant their life had become meaningful. They have saved lives. They have meant something to 19 people who somehow stranded, arrived within their reach. You cannot help the whole world, but those that are within your reach, you can treat and respect as human beings. I said in the beginning of this podcast, that the story isn't chronological. Time jumps. My personal storylines have become so intersected with my grandmother's story that I feel tangled in a web of past and present. My husband's young death only makes sense in the context of my grandmother's grief, and studying the political landscape of my grandmother's childhood 
gives me fear when I read the news today. In 2015, the year I met Sine in Denmark and Bent in Copenhagen and Per Arne and his family in Sweden, more than one million people sought refuge in Europe. In Sweden alone, which still to this day is one of the most desirable European countries for immigrants, over 165,000 people sought asylum. 35,000 of those hopeful refugees were children who arrived without their parents, just like Hannah. Then, the debates began. Who belongs here? Who should be allowed to stay? Who deserves asylum? And who should be sent back home? They came walking, you know, they came from Greece or from Turkey, walking all around east of Europe, Hungary. In our case, there is no other option. Live or die. Next time on We Share the Same Sky. We Share the Same Sky is produced by Erica Lance and me. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and other podcast apps. Please subscribe and leave a review. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at Share the Same Sky. Every episode comes with photographs, videos, and a curriculum that you can use in the classroom. Learn more at sharethesamesky.com. Thank you to USC Shoah Foundation for making this podcast possible. My grandmother's story is one of nearly 55,000 testimonies in their archive from survivors and witnesses of the Holocaust and other genocides. This podcast is also supported by Echoes and Reflections, a program for Holocaust education throughout the United States. I'm Rachel Cerati. Thanks for listening. <laughs>